Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the clock starts to tick on fiscal 2022. The motto for IT contracts in government could become go big or go home. And the prize challenge at the Department of Homeland Security. It's Wednesday, July 13th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Most agencies on a list of 57 federal organizations have good quality spending data, according to analysis from the Government Accountability Office. The analysis found eight agencies have moderate quality data, four have what GAO calls lower quality data. The analysis is part of the 2014 Data Act. You can read more about this story and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. fourth quarter of fiscal 2022 is 13 days old now. Agencies have less than three months to spend their money for the rest of the year. Joe Jordan's president, CEO of Actaparo. He's former administrator of federal procurement policy. We've called this in the past uh, the uh, uh, federal Christmas because as we get down to the end of September, the money's just going out like crazy. Um, What do you think agencies should be thinking about now to prepare to spend this money wisely, effectively over the rest of the fiscal year, Joe? Welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Francis. And um, yeah, fiscal Q4 and the federal government is is so huge because you've got, you know, about half the spend for the entire year going out in a 90 day period. So that's quite a bit of money. I think, you know, if I'm, I'm sitting in uh, the government side of the, the equation, one, most of your really complex uh, and large scale procurements have been, you know, being worked throughout the uh, fiscal year. And so you should be in a good place to kind of get those to the finish line, hopefully. And, you know, at this point, you're really just tying it uh, together, any last minute negotiating pricing items, etc. And uh, making sure all of the uh, elements of the contract are compliant. But what really gets uh, a lot of the dollars flowing are simple services, commodity goods. And, and I don't mean literally rock salt. I'm talking about IT hardware and software and things that are like commercial items. And in those cases, what you really want to do is think about how are you going to effectively um, get these items for your agency quickly and also at uh, the lowest reasonable cost. And so which vehicles are you set up to use? What competition engines or tools or pricing mechanisms are you uh, ready to go on and things like that? Because that's what you can, you still have time to kind of get those aligned before you need to get the dollars out the door by September 30th. Should that be happening at like the chief procurement officer level or is that, is that level work done already and it's down to the COs and so on? You know what? That's actually a great complicated question because in a lot of cases, yes, it's great when the uh, chief procurement officer, chief acquisition officer, leadership level says, hey, we we have line of sight into all sorts of these procurements from our agency. And we also discuss with our peers at the chief acquisition officer council, uh, et cetera, you know, best practices. And so we want our agency to do X, you know, these sorts of tools and vehicles and things like that. The challenge is at the individual contracting officer level, sometimes they appreciate that. Sometimes they resist it and say, hey, we, we know what's best for our particular 
category of spend or our particular individual procurement. So let us find the most appropriate way to do it. And, and either answer can actually work as long as that uh, contracting officer level discretion is uh, also coupled with some you know, measurement and tracking and saying, okay, you have this discretion, but you also then, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And we're going to see the outcomes of what you bought. Now, rather than setting a, um, uh, a 77 day timeline for accomplishing this probably makes sense to set a 57 day timeline for this or a 47 day timeline. So you're not crunched and, and figuring this out in the afternoon of September 30th, right, Joe? Oh, absolutely, Francis. And, and honestly, that also uh, is a reason that um, contractors and sellers to the government should be paying attention to the very last minute. And here's what I mean. So if you if you do what you just said and you know say, OK, the next 57 days, we want everything out the door with you know leaving a 20 day buffer. One of the smart reasons to do that is because when you go out and purchase these things, you're going to say, OK, I need you know, 15,000 software licenses for this particular piece of software or, you know, 8,000 uh, cubicles and desks and chairs. And, and you have an independent government cost estimate. You have an idea of what you think it's going to cost as an agency. But a lot of times, especially, you know, with all of the pricing competition tools at these agencies disposal these days, they get those items uh, for less than they thought, for less than they estimated. That leaves leftover spending. And we're talking about the federal government here, Francis. Use it or lose it. We're not returning that money to the Treasury, God forbid. And so there's going to be something else purchased with that leftover spending in the remaining you know, two or three weeks. And so that's uh, you know, a cycle that repeats right up to the very last hour of, of September 30th. And so um, contractors may look at what an agency's out with 57 days from now and say, well, unfortunately, you know, those aren't my items, should still pay attention for the next two or three weeks because there may be some stuff for them coming. You mentioned cost and pricing tools. What are the most effective ones that should be used by agencies up and down the chain here that we've described today? Well, I think one is um, whichever kind of contract vehicle you may be using, like, hey, I love just set aside for small businesses, throw it out there, get your bids and you know, pick your winner. Um, but if you're using a, a best-in-class vehicle, category management, multiple word contracts, you know, some of these big enterprise vehicles for IT stuff especially, um, make sure you don't just go pick someone or do the, the lazy, hey, we're going to ask three people and as long as at least one of them bids, we're good to go. No, like try to engender real task order level competition now. I am obviously biased having formerly run FedBid, and I think reverse auctions are amazing for things where you can clearly define the technical specifications. Uh, it will deliver great pricing, but there are other tools like that that will engender good competition very quickly, compliantly, and effectively. All right. You spoke a few moments ago about what to do if someone's sitting in a federal office today. If someone is sitting in your former federal office, one of the problems they have, you dropped me a note about this. Uh, earlier in the week is they don't know who their next boss is going to be again. God bless Leslie Field, who has been the administrator of federal procurement policy longer than probably anybody in history at this point, because she does it as an acting base on an acting basis. And Matthew Blum and Joni Newhart and all the others. Um, why, why are you so passionate about the fact that we're back to square one in that organization, Joe? Yeah. So, and Francis, what you're referring to is um, 
you know, they, the administration put forward a nominee for the Office of Federal Procurement Policy Administrator almost a year ago, uh, and then just last month withdrew that nomination with the uh, the nominee chose to pursue other opportunities line, which, you know, if you believe that, I've got a uh, bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Um, and, and it's just really disappointing because, you know, Leslie and, you know, she is the longest serving and probably best administrator for that office that they've ever had. Uh, Matthew, Joni, the whole team there, they're incredible. And so one reaction to me saying that would be, well, Joey, you know, and who needs some political to come in and muck it up? No, it, the issue is, where administrators can be very effective is, you know, having difficult conversations, small p political conversations within the policy councils of the West Wing and the Eisenhower Executive Office building and pushing back in a way that is not fair to make Leslie and Matthew uh, as, you know, kind of career senior officials have to do that. And so uh, also interfacing with Congress. So when I saw that, you know, and when I heard, hey, you know, the Senate's not approving, um, folks who aren't focused on national security or in critical positions, that just really bummed me out because it shows a lack of understanding of the importance of this role and what it can mean. And especially at a time like this, where we just wasted a whole fiscal year without um, someone overseeing policy from that, um, again, more small P political bent. So um, I really hope that they get someone uh, in that role. Uh, and uh, again, I'll end where I started not in any way because of the fantastic uh, leaders that they already have. Yeah, this is one of the cases, actually, Joe, where I believe it when the White House said that the person, you know, they withdrew the nomination because the person didn't want to continue to pursue it. You know, I'm connect. I don't know Binyam at all, but I'm connected on LinkedIn and I see this is a person that has a life and he wants to get on with it. And he sat there for a year without any any movement on the nomination and at some point i believe that somebody with a life goes well i gotta keep living it well i told you i think we're saying the same thing oh, okay but it, but if this why the heck does a nomination for ofpp administrator take a year exactly. to go through no, you're exactly so right. that's the part that i'm pissed about like the fact that he eventually threw his hands up and said you guys are idiots. You're wasting my time. It's really hard to sit in limbo. I don't know that he said anything. Yeah, I was going to say, now you might be putting words in his mouth, Joe. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's hard. And I mean, what people don't realize is like, like you just said, these are humans who are putting a lot of their life on them. When I went through my confirmation process and almost got derailed because there were some recess appointments to the National Labor Relations Board. And so the Republicans in the Senate said, we're not confirming any other Obama nominees. I was like, well, I don't know anything about this at all. I have no... Why are you taking me? And so it's a very tricky process. And I'm just bummed that uh, the Senate, and, and frankly, I think at least some blame probably lays at the foot of the White House, um, you know, didn't do more to get this done. If your goal when you had your first cup of coffee this morning was, I'm going to tick off everybody that might listen to the Daily Scoop podcast, I think you've been successful, my friend. Hey, come on. If, uh, if I can't bring any insights, I'm going to bring some energy, Francis. It's great to see you, my friend. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. You can read more about the end of the fiscal year in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Thursday's show, a deep dive on data in the Army. Lori Mongold, Division Chief for Global Force Information Management for the Army, is on tomorrow's show. That episode debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows.
The new version of the State Department's Evolve contract could be worth up to $10 billion. It's the largest IDIQ contract the State Department's ever issued. Joe Klimovich is Managing Director at KPMG. He's former Chief Information Officer at the Department of Justice. Joe, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The details of the Evolve contract are not as important to what I want to discuss with you. The details are available at fedscoop.com. We have a link in today's show notes. What's important here, I think, is $10 billion potential. I understand that. But that's a lot of work that's going to be going through the IT shop at a federal agency. And I wonder, in your experience, what that looks like from the CIO view. Welcome, Joe. Well, thank you, uh, Francis. Great to be here and great to be with you. Um, well, I think you know we're seeing more and more of these very large multi-year uh, IDIQs. And there's a lot of advantages to the government. Uh, they really, really works well for, for the government. Um, there's a lot of them already in place, uh, you know, GSA, uh, NIH, uh, NASA, just to name a few. And there seems to be uh, more of them uh, popping up almost every day. You know, I, my first experience uh, putting together a large multi-year IDIQ was at NOAA in 2009. Definitely learned a lot from, um, you know, from doing so. Um, I think, um, yeah, Department of Justice, uh, I, I did not uh, emphasize putting together a separate IDIQ uh, for, for the department uh, because we used and leveraged so many of these existing vehicles um, that are available across uh, the federal you know, agencies. Um, you know, I think from my perspective, Francis, is that uh, most of these uh, IDIQs, they, they charge, um, you know, fees for, for using the vehicles. And uh, one vehicle that I particularly like is that the Air Force has a vehicle called Strategic Transformation Support. And it's a, a multi-year IDAQ, but it's opened up to the entire federal government. And the, the beauty of this is that there's no overhead uh, or user fees. So anybody can use it as long as it's transformation related. And then it's all, you know, it's very fast. Um, you know, typically acquisitions take a long time in the government. Um, there, there are a lot of work, a lot of time, energy put in place. And I'd say looking at it from, you know, from my two and a half years now in the industry, it's the same thing here. I mean, we put a lot of time and effort into responding to these, uh, you know, acquisitions and the government doesn't want to, you know, have to recompete the work every year. So that's why you see these longer term, uh, multi-year awards. Now, the other thing is that, uh, once you get that, that, team in place, the industry team, um, it's, it's pretty uh, set. They, you know, they know, they know you, they know the environment, they know the process, they know the people, uh, very responsive. So there's a lot of advantages uh, to uh, putting these vehicles in place. So the idea of the agency building its own, as we see here with state versus using one that already exists. Let's take each of those in turn. We'll start with an agency deciding to stand one up on its own, Joe. What are the pros and cons as you've experienced some of the lessons that you've learned um, about the idea of standing up uh, a vehicle on an agency's own, doing it for itself? What's good and bad about that? Well, I think I think the, the acquisition shop would definitely appreciate uh, the work. I mean, all these procurement organizations, they one hand, they're they're overworked and there's not enough contracting officers in the federal government. But on the other hand, if if all your your acquisitions and you know, typically in my experience, is 10% of the overall agency budget goes to IT. 
So if 10% of the, the um, contracted work goes outside of your agency, uh, that's that can be a challenge. The other is, uh, if you have your own vehicle in place, you set it up with your parameters, your requirements, the way you want. Uh, it's focused on your needs, your environment, and uh, you you can start building that relationship with the, those industry partners. Uh, in the case of the State Department, and again, I, I'm not uh, familiar with that vehicle, but they the awardees will, will know the State Department, uh, and they'll continue learning and developing that relationship throughout the uh, the life of that contract. And um, you know, just just getting everything set up the way you want it, uh, and being able to control some of the parameters, leveraging somebody else's. I mean, again, that can be fast, right? Because I don't have to go through the acquisition process of, of sometimes several years to get something awarded. Um, but you don't have as much control and. Uh, you know, the other thing from a CIO perspective, I like to know where the money's going, what we're buying, how it's gonna be managed, how it's gonna be secured. And you may not have as much visibility uh, into that and, and, and as much of a say. So there's, it's almost a matter of, uh, you know, if you go outside, it can be faster, but you don't have as much control or say. Internal, once you get it set up, you're probably in a better place. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that's why you're going to see, I think, a combination. I don't think all State Department IT is going to go through, in you know, dollars are going to go through this one vehicle, but, um, you know, they're probably going to try to drive as much as, as they can. Knowing where the money's going is more important than ever in a Fatara era, isn't it, Joe? Absolutely. You know, where the money's going and uh, what you're getting for it, uh, the ROI and, and really how it, you're securing the, the data and systems. What uh, happens in year one of this contract, in year two of this contract? What are you tracking as a CIO once the awards have been made, people start to put task orders against it and move forward on it? What are you paying attention to, if anything, to make sure that it's working the way you want it to? Well, my experience, uh, again, going back to, the, to my time as CIO for NOAA's, is that uh, you make an initial award of, say, $10,000 to everybody. So you got to give them a contract and have a, a contract means exchange of money. And um, after that, uh, staffing up and being prepared to respond to task orders. So you put out the task orders and uh, you, the, one of the biggest, there's, look, there's, Francis, there's a lot of things you got to be aware of here. Um, governance is a huge issue. Uh, how, you know, who's going to decide? Is the CEO going to make all the calls? How are you, you know, what kind of, um, delegation responsibilities, what, you know, how, working with the, the CO or uh, assistant COs. Uh, is there an architecture that you're trying to build to accountability? Integration is a huge issue. So just generating these task orders can be fairly straightforward, but um, you know, how, how are you mapping those? How are you ensuring that those deliver value? Getting the right sequence in place, um, how lifecycle support the whole change management piece. So the government's going to generate a lot of task orders. They may generate uh, several task orders and ask industry to propose on those. So if these were the first three to five task orders, what would, how, what would your proposal look like? What would your pricing look like? But they may or may not be the first, you know, task orders out of the gate. Um, but you want to make sure that um, your industry partners are staffing up their they can respond. 
Uh, one thing to think about is establishing an IDIQ doesn't necessarily mean that everybody on that IDIQ has to respond to every task order. In fact, you may have no one responding to a task order if they're, they don't have staff in place or they feel like it's not uh, the right thing, unless you explicitly state so in the initial solicitation that everybody must bid on every task order that comes out. Um, so that's, that's those are some of the things you're thinking about initially is, can they respond? What do those initial task orders look like? How do you prevent um, things from just being chaotic? You know, fast, fast, easy, and and uh, you lose control. Uh, down the road, um, you want to be uh, looking at uh, are are there certain uh, industry partners who are not maybe winning as much work, or maybe not winning any, any work. And do you need to maybe refresh your industry pool? Um, how do you, you know, what does that look like? And what's what's in the solicitation? What what did you say you're going to do? Uh, are you going to recompete um, the the industry partners on a regular basis? Um, so you want to make sure you got a viable pool of industry partners, and that everybody's, um, you know, out there competing. Because as as a whether you're a CIO or the chief procurement executive, you want competition. I mean, that's that's your friend. So those are some of the things that I'd be thinking about. Joe Klimovich, excellent insight as always. It's great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. You can read more about the State Department contract in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Nominations are open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. We want you to nominate leaders in the federal IT community for their achievements and contributions to the community. You can read more about how to nominate somebody through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Homeland Security Department's newest prize challenge takes on cooling solutions. It's part of an effort by the department to find solutions to a number of aspects of climate change. Kathleen Kenyon is program lead for prize challenges at the Science and Technology Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. Kathleen, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. How do you determine when a challenge is a good approach for a particular problem set you want to address and when some other approach might be better? Welcome. Yeah, so prize challenges really allow us a lot of flexibility. Um, They really allow us to crowdsource and get great creative, spark creative ideas from those in the public, those who think about things, you know, who are mentors, who could be uh, students in school thinking about really cool ideas. Um, It also allows us to, you know, really do it fast and get a lot of uh, crowdsourcing and, and excitement around a problem. In some cases though, you know, what we're actually looking for may not have a solution out there. There may not be something existing already that we can grab onto through a, a traditional means. So prize challenges really allow us to send that signal to the public and say, here's something we're working on right now. We don't have a solution for it. What do you, what do you got? And I think that's so powerful and compelling to really elicit that from any person, any you know, small business, startup company, large business can apply for a prize challenge with us. How do you get the word out that you to the community that will potentially be able to respond thoughtfully and well to whatever the challenges that you're issuing? 
Yeah, um, you know, we're always working to create that ecosystem, that network. We have great communication through other parts of what we do when it comes to innovation. So our Silicon Valley Innovation Program has great network. We've done accelerator work in the past and inc with incubators and accelerators, great network. Um, we primarily use two courses of action. You know, first is the government has all their challenges listed on challenge.gov, which is our hub for all challenges. Um, we obviously listed it on, on our Homeland Security website um, and use social media. But getting the word out is really key. And, and one of the prize challenges we did uh, about six months ago, we're really trying to find designers to help us with designing uh, the digital wallet interface. So kind of a clunk, clunky thing that was happening. It really is that first stop when someone comes and applies for credentials for like a, being a U.S. citizen. And we really wanted to inspire and get to designers, freelance designers who have never ever worked with Homeland Security to think about ways to make that really intuitive and friendly to use. So we had to think about ways to get to that differently. And we, we started to think about like, where would designers live? Do they live, do they take courses at schools? Yeah, let's try that. Um, do they have a trade associations they belong to? Let's try that. So we're really trying to figure out where do we where do we inspire and get to that audience that can help us solve the issue. You mentioned challenge.gov and it causes me to think, I don't know a lot about the challenge community, the challenge ecosystem in government, if there is one. Is there one? And if, the, if so, how robust, how active is it? It is extremely robust. Uh, I think the the leading organization out there that probably we have learned the most from is NASA. And NASA does a hundred challenges a year. Um, everything from you know the Mars rover, right, to you know stargazing. Um, others like uh, HHS do <laughs> great prize challenges. Um, the Defense Department. They're all basically looking for. Um, inspired ideas or inspired solutions. So that's the other thing I should mention is that prize challenges, unlike other things, you, you can solicit for a, solu a solution, an actual product or an idea. And sometimes that idea is just a concept and that's okay. That's the kind of thing we're really interested in because that's gonna help us guide the development. We can even work with that prize winner after the prize concludes. So. Challenge.gov is a great way to find out about prizes within the government. Um, and it's you're going to see millions and millions of prizes there, as well as millions and millions of dollars there that are really great to inspire those to work with us who may not work with us traditionally. I mentioned the cooling challenge and you awarded $195,000 on that challenge. I want to separate out the solutions that you got, the, the winning uh, responses and the mechanics of the challenge itself. What did you learn from the, from the challenge about how you evaluated the respondents, about whether you got the kind of responses that you wanted, you know, the breadth or depth of responses you want, all, all of that, that you'll apply to the next one and the next one and the next one? Yeah, I, I always learn something in every prize challenge. It is absolutely, it's always shock, shocking to me. I shouldn't be surprised though. Um, you know, so the Cooling Solutions Prize Challenge, we had entries from a 95 year old. We had entries from uh, people who 
live in Arizona that understand how to cool their homes and have been doing it for generations. Then we also got entries from like students at MIT. Uh, we got entries from uh, a person that that is applying uh, kind of like a small technology engineering firm to how do animals kind of exist in nature and how do they cool themselves naturally. Just a breath of really interesting entries. Um, I think we always find we crave more. We always find we crave more information about the solutions they're thinking about. In some cases, it's the idea stage, so we need to help them along. But they really are, uh, what I find when I talk to the, the finalists and I also talk to the winners, they're incredibly passionate about what they've entered. They're so grateful to have the opportunity to work with Homeland Security, and they can't wait to do more. The appetite is insatiable. So they're just really, I always find, uh, we always want more information. So I think up front, we probably need to ask for more when we do the price challenge announcement, because our judges crave it. They really want to see more, and they're interested in talking to the prize winners. Um, but every walk of life was involved in that prize challenge. And we saw some really cool things, cool textiles, uh, you know, like I mentioned, the mimicking of nature, um, evaporation, things that we haven't thought about. But really, I think a lot of the prize entries we saw were, um, to lack of a better term, down to earth, but really taking a page out of Mother Nature. And how do you look at how we can cool ourselves naturally without using a carbon footprint? I know this question is kind of like asking you to choose your favorite child. So I'll understand if you can't answer it directly, but if, as you look back on the challenges you've been involved with, is there one in particular that stands out in your mind where you go, yeah, that one really, really worked well. And again, I'm not thinking about the solutions that you got. I'm thinking about from a tactical perspective, it, for whatever reason, this one really was a good one. And, and we want to try to model that on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it is like picking a favorite child. Um, there's lots of goodness in each of the prize challenges, but I would say what we really have tried to do in the last year is uh, make our prize challenge process later. Get to it faster. Define it quicker. Get it out there faster. Um, think about, does it have to be a lot of prize money? Maybe not. Maybe there's more things we can do with the prize winners. Maybe we can mentor them and give them access to accelerators who kind of do startup world for a living. Maybe we can have them shadow someone or see something operationally they would not get access to before. I think that leaner model is really working for us. Um, we reduced the cost of the administration cost of prize challenges. It's basically me doing it now. Um, we've really thought about like, how do we, what do we do after the prize challenge is done? What happens next? So our model has changed over the last uh, five years. We've done about a dozen prize challenges. And each time we kind of learn a little bit different. Um, they used to be a little bit longer in time frame, uh, more tech development with stages, which was great because we learned a great deal from that. And we can still use that as one of our tools. But the bigger tool we're seeing is a prize challenge doesn't have to be millions of dollars to really get at interest. It could be like this one, $50,000 was the grand prize for the Kong Solutions. $50,000 to someone who uh, lives in Arizona who runs a household, that's a significant chunk of change. So we're seeing like lower prices can be interesting, visibility with Homeland Security, 
Uh, we're sparking interest in the community. I think we're getting our name out there about the Me Too Prize challenges and then really thinking about what happens after. So with the opioid detection prize challenge, it was a longer prize challenge with several stages to it, but our Customs and Border Protection, they're still working with the prize challenge winners. They're fielding technology now that can help detect opioids in the mail. That's compelling. Kathleen Kenyon, appreciate your time today. Fascinating program, and I'm, I'm happy to learn about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. You can read more about those prize challenges in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.